Hello, this is Lorenzo Della Foresta, and I'm the lead pastor at River's Edge. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining us. I hope this talk inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Today is the continuation of a spiritual conversation that has been taking place between you and Jesus. I'm certain that you'll be blessed by His Word, and I believe that God has great things in store for you because you already belong. Enjoy the message. With regards to this topic called a new attitude, and there's this segment in all of Philippians about this newness of life, and it's interesting because Paul is really experiencing in many ways the end of his life. He's uh, chained to two guards, he's in prison. Things are coming to an end very quickly for Paul, but his joy isn't encapsulated in his own life personally, but it's actually seen and understood more in the interests of what the Philippians are going through. And that's really important. It really sets the foundation of our talk today, because when we talk about how we can experience joy outside of our circumstances, it's usually based on the fact that it is about our personal interests. Our interests come first. Like when I pray, even I'm sure when you do, the things that come to mind first are your own needs. When you think about your life, and you think about the lives of others, you probably prioritize your life 99 times out of 100 every day. And we are wired to obviously take care of ourselves first or the things that belong to us or the things that are entrusted to us, the things that we have roles and responsibilities over above anything or anyone else. And when someone else comes in, asks for help outside of our immediate sphere of, let's say, priority, well, that person is looked at as someone on the outside trying to have access to what we have protected on the inside. Sometimes that's our minds, it's our hearts, it's our lives, it's our finances, it's our relationships, it's what we find ourselves protecting. And I often think of myself as someone who is a servant, a server, I'm more of a giver than a taker. My whole life has been about making sacrifices for other people. I easily lay down my life for people that are even strangers to me on a daily basis. I've even, in this pandemic, I've walked into situations that other people would not have even ventured to go in because it was unsafe. And in the span of two years, I've never been sick, not even one day. God has protected me. I've laid my life down for the benefit of others. And yet, every time I see myself watching a film or a movie and there is some kind of virus affecting the world, there's a group of people who've locked themselves in and someone undoubtedly always comes to the door knocking, crying for help and saying, let me in. And in that moment, there's always this discussion behind the door of, don't open the door, well, we can't let them die, they're there. Listen, if you open this door, we're all gonna die. And we get this sense where if we open the door and we make someone else's interests our interests, how does that 
help us or maybe affect us negatively even to the point where we become endangered, where we are risking our life. Paul is in prison for the benefit of the 99. His joy isn't based on the fact that he has everything going for his life. It's, it's the opposite. It's, it's like he's happy because the Philippians are doing well. And the joy that he has isn't because his life is working out. It's because their life is. And his joy isn't in himself, but it's in them. And Paul has taken on a position that we only see Jesus take on. Jesus is the example that Paul is following, and he reveals a newfound attitude in how we are to also experience joy, where our joy isn't just found in us doing well, us being protected, us not being threatened, but someone else thriving someone else being blessed, someone else moving forward in their life, even though it seemingly looks like ours isn't. It's hard to do, isn't it? What would you do? Would you guys open the door and let the people in? I don't know. I'm not sure if I would. I'm not sure. Sometimes I think I would. I would 100%. And then there are times I'm like, I don't know. I'm like doubtful. Even though I know the right thing would be to do. But sometimes someone at the door could be, right, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And in moments like that, you need help. You need something beyond just a moral compass. Something beyond just a compassionate heart. And something beyond just a love for humanity. You need something more than just a sense of, 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 of what is right and wrong and, and, and somehow what should be done in a situation like that. You need an insight that only God can sometimes give you. We don't realize how powerful the influence of the Holy Spirit is to the point where it can tell you in a moment just like that, do not open the door. Even though everything in your mind is telling you to do it, the voice comes and says, don't. The Holy Spirit whispering against your every intention and impulse, no matter how good, no matter how right, even in the eyes of others. It's saying, walk away. Don't open that door. Don't do what is feeling natural to be done in that moment. God is saying, I'm not just here to help you once in a while when things really are bad. I'm here to help you and guide you every step of the way. And so what God does is that he brings not just a new attitude and perspective on life, but he helps us to unify things that are unintentionally separated right now. And I'm going to give you an example. You see, when we think about three things that are important to unify, I'm going to mention them as the mind, 
as the emotions and the will. And I want you to know that sometimes those three things are separated because of our brokenness. In other words, we have in our mind a decision that we have made to do things differently, but our emotions are a mess and they override the decisions of the mind. Sometimes the problem isn't the mind and the emotions. We've got control over those two, but there's something broken about our will. We just can't seem to to stick to what we've already determined and decided that we were going to do. And sometimes all three of those things are waging war with each other. So what God does is that he comes into our lives and he presents himself as the Father and as the Son and as the Holy Spirit and says, I am here to bring you wholeness. In the same way that we are one, I want to make you one. The only way that you are fully alive and fully human and fully capable of living your best life is if I am able not just to give you a new attitude and show you how to have joy in the circumstances of this life that are hard, but I am here to unify the three things that only I can bring together powerfully as one in your life. I'm going to bring together your mind. I'm going to bring together your emotions and I am bring together your will and I will make you one. I will unify you. And so what God does is that he comes into our lives and whether we realize it or not, he comes with the purpose of unifying these three things that right now without him are waging war against each other. So when our mind is right, our emotions are wrong. And when our emotions and mind are right, our will is not cooperating. And sometimes the will is what brings it all together. And I want you to understand that you can believe in God as the Father. You can even have trust in the Holy Spirit. But unless Jesus unifies it all, you are not going to be able to experience this unity. And so our surrender to Jesus is key. Our decision to invite him into our hearts is imperative. There is nothing more important than receiving Jesus because believing in the Father is not going to unify you. Believing in the Spirit is not going to be enough because most people already believe in those two things. But what brings them all together, the only thing that unifies them all, the only thing that has the power to bring both the mind and emotions and the will together is your belief and my belief in Jesus Christ as the God that we need to make us whole. Turning to Jesus is the difference. It's the difference maker. It's what changes everything. It's what makes wholeness possible. Now, when that happens, when we invite Jesus into our lives, Paul says there's, there's a few things that are going to happen. And so in the type of unity that I'm talking about, I want you to see verse 2 and how Paul explains it, the way he articulates it for us. Let's put that verse up, verse 2 in Philippians 2. And it says, Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, 
And then look at this, loving one another and working together with one mind and one purpose. And what God is saying is that it is important for us to find people who are going to be like-minded, who are going to be likeness, going to have likeness of love, and who are going to be likeness in spirit and in purpose. So Paul says that when we are looking for a new attitude and a new way to experience life, this is going to be the key. He puts it here in this verse. He's saying this is what it looks like. You're going to have like-mindedness. Now, if we're in relationships, we know. Whether it's a friendship or it's something more intimate, we know that the more compatible you are, the better your relationship is. People say opposites attract, but they make for terrible relationships. The more alike you are, even in your brokenness, even in, then you're not going to argue about the brokenness because you're broken in the same way and you're okay with it. If you're both messy, no one's going to look at the other person and say you're messy. You're not going to call someone out on something that you are. You're going to call them out on something that you're not, something that bothers you. And so the more things that you have in common, the more things that you like and are like-minded about, then you're not going to argue about those things. So like-mindedness is important, but also the likeness of love. Like if you're able to love in the same way, which is a challenge really because we're different. The way we're wired, we have to figure out how to love one another and, and how to appreciate one another and to show love in the way that our partner wants to experience it or our friend desires to have it. The things that matter to them are the things that need to matter to you. And, and I want to encourage you to look for the blog that's going to come out this Monday, and it's on this topic, in fact. And so it's because it's Valentine's Day. I thought I'd write something about that. And so look for that. And if you're not signed up uh, to receive it automatically in your, in your inbox, then you can do that on the website as well. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because when we talk about the likeness of love, we all have a different love language, right? There's a different way that each of us appreciates being communicated to. My wife doesn't want me to spend money on anything, really. That is her love language. If I go through the entire week and I spend no money, she loves me more. <laughs> she does. It's not a joke. It's true. 100%. And if I spend money on her, it bothers her, but what she wants is a handwritten card. She wants words. She wants me to write out why she's special, why I love her, why she means so much to me. And so she would rather receive that than anything else. I know this about her. And so if I go out and I spend money on her, she's going to be happy to get it, but those first 30 minutes are going to be turmoil in her spirit, in her mind. It's just going to bother her. And so I don't bother anymore. And, and we're both happier. Because we have found a way to understand likeness of love. Does that make sense? Then you need to find likeness in spirit and purpose. And sometimes you are with someone and you're doing life with someone. And Paul says that, you know, the way that you get into a right relationship with someone is by having the same purpose. It's interesting because most people would start with attraction and then look for commonalities, 
But the one thing that divides more people and more friendships and more relationships is unity and purpose. If you are not unified in purpose, you will not last. You just can't. A church that doesn't know its purpose and moves in the direction of that purpose cannot reach its city. In the same way that you cannot reach the very heart that you have given yourself to if you don't have alignment in purpose. So whether that be in friendship or in relationship, you have to know what your purpose is and you have to understand how this person is not going to deter you or somehow distract you or somehow bring destruction to you away from the purpose that God has given you. It's not that they're bad. It's not that they're evil. It's not that they're not a good person overall. But if you are not aligned in purpose, then you cannot be the person that God has called you to be. Everything that he wants you to be, everything that he wants you to experience, everything that he wants you to have in this life cannot be attained if you are not able to walk on the same path with the person that God has put you on this earth with to do exactly that. And so it's an important thing to experience unity. God helps us to have unity. God helps us by changing our minds. He helps us by transforming our love. He helps us by giving us a whole new spirit and a newfound purpose. Sometimes when nothing else is working in, in the natural Jesus Christ can do the supernatural. And I, I've seen people who couldn't be more different and who before didn't have any like-mindedness now have it because Jesus Christ has transformed them and transformed their relationship. See, when Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't just bring wholeness in your mind and in your emotions and in your will, but he does it in your relationship if your partner comes alongside and says, I want that too. And so when you are determined as two people to have that in your life and in your relationship, then you're going to have unity the way that the Bible is describing it. And it's going to change everything and transform you to have a new attitude like never before. And so I often go before God and say, God, I need a new attitude. I need a new attitude towards this person. I need a new attitude towards the situation, the circumstances. I need a new attitude towards what I'm going through in this life. I, I can't continue the way that I'm thinking. I can't continue the way that I'm feeling. And I certainly can't continue with myself losing control to my will over and over again and becoming visibly the worst version of myself under pressure. And, and I think you've all been there. And you pray, God, just change my mind, change my heart, change my will. Help me to do something about this attitude that I have. Listen, one of the things that many of us have confronted someone else with is the attitude that they had. Have you ever just looked at your kid, no matter what age they were, and say, your attitude stinks right now? 
when they were three years old or whether they're 30. You still say it. Your attitude is bad. You have to change your attitude. Someone ever said that to you? Your attitude in this moment is, is really horrible. It's terrible. And, and you look at yourself and you say, in a very defensive manner, no, your attitude is worse. The reason my attitude is like this is because your attitude has brought me to this point, right? So we do this thing where we blame other people for where we're at and how we don't have control and for how our disunity in our mind and in our emotions and now our will is so evident. I would love to always be the person who's like cool under pressure, never snaps, never yells back, never loses it. I don't know if I'll ever experience that, but I want to be that so badly. There are times where I go a long time, you know, a good two minutes. Anybody else? Like, like maybe longer, maybe five, maybe ten, maybe half an hour, maybe a whole day, maybe even a few days. But it's like, it's just building up though, you know what I mean? Like it's just there, building up. And, and, and then when, when, I, when I least expect it, there it is. Oh, the monster is out. And, and then the words, you have a bad attitude, come. And it, it couldn't be truer. Because somehow I have allowed myself to believe that I had the ultimate control over my mind, my emotions, and my will. And the truth is, the only person who can unify those things is Jesus. He's the only one who can change me. He's the only one who can truly bring about a transformation of a new attitude. And so what does a transformation of attitude look like? Well, Paul says this. He says in verses 3 to 4, he, he, I love the way he articulates it. He says, here are some of the wrong attitudes. So verses 3 and 4 says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. He's saying, when you have the wrong attitudes, it's going to look like this. It's going to look like selfish ambition. It's going to look like self-importance. And it's going to be a life that is lived self-centeredly. And so Paul, what he does is in this passage is that he tells us, here are what the wrong attitudes are, and here's how to correct it. When you have selfish ambition, this is what he says, you are focused on impressing others. That's your only intention. It's just so others look at you and are impressed. And he goes, if that's your focus, if that's your intention, here's what's going to happen. You are going to fail. You are going to falter. You're going to lose that respect because this is not what brings wholeness. This is not what allows your personal direction to move forward. This is what actually works against it. So he says, I don't want you to be a person that is filled with selfish ambition. And sometimes in our lives, we want to prove people wrong. I, I wanted to prove my sixth grade teacher wrong. 
Why my sixth grade teacher is still in my head as a man who already has a family and is no longer in school and has multiple degrees, including a master's degree? Why does it matter? But sometimes you go to something in your past and you use that as fuel and you use that as what determines you as a person. When someone says that you will never be good at something, that you'll never amount to anything, where you will never be able to sit in a classroom and study and pass exams and get degrees. Somehow, throughout my life, I was doing it for the wrong reasons. Do you understand what I'm saying? It fueled me, but it wasn't what God wanted. There was a selfish ambition there that didn't have a greater purpose until that changed and I just wanted to do the best that I could so that I could have the greatest impact that I could for the most people that God would bring into my life. And all of a sudden, that ambition was turned around and it became something that was God was able to use for good. Now think about how Satan is able to take things like ambition, importance, and centeredness and use it against us. And Paul is saying, I want you to never allow your own personal interests to take priority. I never want you to think that you are better than others. So Paul in these verses is saying, I want you to live your life in a way that best reflects what Jesus was about. And if you can do this, and if you accomplish this, then you are going to dispel these wrong attitudes and not allow them to have control. Now, what happens, Paul says, when we do things away from this is that we begin to experience true success. God blesses and multiplies what we do, who we are, what we give him. The things that we become able to effectively bring about for the benefit and the blessing of others. And so when you start to look at how God wants to use you, he wants you to think of the interests of others. You say, if I'm going to bless you, how are you going to make this world a better place? If I bless you, how are you going to be a better person? If I bless you with this, how is this going to impact those in your household? What's going to change in your sphere of influence? And how is this going to be better for those in your city? And it's hard to think like that because sometimes we're just living paycheck to paycheck, for goodness sakes. Sometimes it's hard to think like that because we're just thinking moment to moment. I, I mean, we have problems, real problems. We have health issues, real health issues. We have kids that we, we, we want to get rid of really desperately. We don't want them in our lives to give us so many problems. We, we, there are things that we have that are, that are problematic, and we think that if we could just get rid of the problems, we would be our best selves, and we would have a better life, and we would be able to do more for the benefit of others. But Paul is saying, no, you're getting it all wrong. You see, the first change I want to bring about is in you. The first thing I want to unify is in you. The wholeness I want to bring is in you. 
and then everything else outside of you is going to benefit from the blessing that I have made you. And when you stop thinking about your personal ambitions, importance, and self-centeredness, I then begin to do a work in you where I begin to trust you with more because you keep giving it away instead of holding on to it. And when you give it away, what you're doing is you're giving God room to give you more. Make room for God in your life. Make room for Jesus in your life. And then Paul says, here are what the right attitudes are like. He says the right attitudes found in verses 6, 7, and 8, he says, is that Jesus, though he was God, look at this, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. But instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. And what Jesus did is that he lowered himself to the point of being a criminal on death row. So that anyone, literally anyone, could experience freedom and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So that no one would be excluded from the grace and the wholeness that God was offering. So no one could be able to say, I have to be good enough. Jesus would say, no, I am good enough for you and for anyone else that believes in me. You don't have to be good enough. I am good enough. Can we say amen to that? And so Jesus did all of those things. So, so it would go against the very nature of who Christ is and who Christ wants to be in us if we also didn't behave in the way that Jesus wants us to. If we think us of ourselves better than others, then we are working in opposition to the Spirit of Christ. If we think of ourselves as somehow having rights and privileges that we are not willing to lay down, then we are working in opposition to the Spirit of Christ. You see, Jesus laid down his rights. He laid down his privileges. He had the right to claim divinity, but he became humanity instead. He had the right to prove his innocence, but accepted to be seen as a criminal. He was able to free himself for the cross, but chose the cross so we would never have to go ourselves. See, he did all of those things because he knew that there was one who would not just allow Jesus to humble himself, but someone who would also allow him to one day be exalted. And the beautiful thing about the passages of scriptures that are for us is this, that humility will always go before exaltation. And so if we humble ourselves, God says, I promise you, humble yourself and I will exalt you. But if you exalt yourself, then there's nothing for me to do in your life. You're doing it all yourself. And you are going to live by your own exaltation. Your reward will be the applause of men and women 
It'll be the fame and the fortune that you accumulate through your own hard work. It'll be because of the good or bad that you have either done or have somehow escaped being done to you. But you will not have the full reward that I had promised you. So God is saying, if you will humble yourself, then I can exalt you. And that's why in Mark chapter 10, look at this verse, 43, 44, and we're wrapping it up right now. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. In Luke chapter 14, verse 11, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, in the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders and all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another for God will always oppose the proud but is always going to give grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and look at this, and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. And that's what happened with Paul. That's what happened with Jesus. That's what happened with Jesus. That's what happened with Paul. Paul was able to humble himself because he knew that God would exalt him. Jesus laid down himself and humbled himself because he knew the day would come when God would exalt him. And through the power of the resurrection, if we want to experience the fullness of that power and what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this life, with a new attitude, experiencing wholeness in our mind, in our emotions, and in our will, and possessing a new attitude, a new attitude of humility that God can now work and exalt, then here we are, guys. Here we are. God can do this for you right now. He can lift you up. He can change and transform you like never before. Are you ready to receive that in your life? Father, I want to thank you for every person that is here, for the way that you are teaching us and encouraging us to see things differently and in a brand new light. Thank you, Father, that you have brought this teaching to us from the scriptures and for the way that you have modeled it for us, Jesus, the way you have shown us what it's supposed to be truly like. Thank you for all of that. And for the way that you are going to create this new attitude in us by unifying our mind and our emotions and our will right now. Lord, we want to humble ourselves in your presence. And we want to believe in the power of you being able to exalt us at the right time. Lord, you are able to do greater and much more as we would open ourselves to you right now. And I pray, Father, that as we open our hearts to you and we invite you, Jesus, into our lives, we see Jesus come and take full possession of our mind, of our hearts, of our lives. Have control, Lord, like never before. Create in each of us this new life that you have promised us, this full life that you are giving us. Thank you for every person, Lord, that is responding to this right now and asking you for that new attitude from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the River's Edge podcast. I encourage you to take the message you have just received and allow it to go deeply into your soul. Let Jesus do the work that only he can do. 
A heartfelt thank you to all those that generously give to River's Edge and make this podcast possible. You too can be a part of spreading this message and creating life change all over the world by going to riversedge.life slash give. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast. Thanks again for listening and God bless you immensely.